Hello, this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist, episode 55. Welcome back. The purpose of this podcast is to explore philosophy, psychology, and science with an emphasis on the great philosopher George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. The central tenets of The Cunning of Geist are as follows. One, that there is more going on in the world than blind materialism. Two, that evolution is central to the universe. Three, that there is a higher realm than the finite plane of existence working within us all, which is called spirit or Geist in German. And four, that we are all part of an historical evolutionary process of increasing consciousness and comprehension of spirit. Now, in this episode of The Cunning of Geist, we'll be exploring the question of whether the electronic revolution will further extend itself into the thinking, feeling, and freedom of choice of robots. Or to put it another way, will artificial intelligence, AI for short, ever become not artificial? Will it become ever real, alive? And finally, does Hegelian philosophy provide a blueprint for how to achieve this? Or does any philosophy for that matter? These are all very interesting questions which we're going to be exploring in this episode. First, though, I want to step back and take a moment and look at the arts and what they have to say about this. Because there's been an expression of artificial intelligence for some time now in film and on television over the last 70 years. And many of these films have dealt with questions we're going to be covering here today. Most of you are probably familiar with C-3PO and R2-D2 from Star Wars, the original Star Wars, as well as the Terminator films starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. All these are examples of um, artificial intelligence. But the one I want to focus on, the one film, is the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey, and particularly the computer HAL from that movie. Now, I'm sure most of you have seen this film, but if you haven't seen it by any chance, I urge you to watch. It's quite an incredible film on many levels. It's often listed in the top 10 of greatest films ever made. Now, those of you that have seen it recall, there's a computer named HAL that plays a central role in the film. HAL is an artificial intelligence character. Now, HAL is controlling a spaceship of Earthlings, and the, which is headed to the planet Jupiter. And HAL is capable of speech, speech recognition, facial recognition, lip reading, natural language processing, art appreciation, interpreting emotional behaviors, automated reasoning, and also command and control of the spaceship. He also plays chess, and he talks frequently with, with the two astronauts that are on board. There's several other astronauts that are in hibernation. But anyway, you can watch the movie for that. But the key thing is there are two awake astronauts, and they, are, they communicate with HAL all the time. Now, in the film, HAL begins to show some small signs of malfunctioning. The two human astronauts decide that they need to shut him down for the safety of the mission. HAL, however, gets wind of this through his lip-reading capabilities and decides to kill the two astronauts to save the mission. What a story. He is actually successful in killing one of the astronauts, but the second one, Dave, narrowly escapes death from hell, and then Dave goes ahead and shuts hell down in a very famous scene. Now, interesting question here. What was going on with hell? Why did he go mad? Well, the film hints at the reason, but the book that the movie is based on is, is a bit clearer. 
Hal was programmed to keep the reason for the mission secret from the two astronauts. And the secret is that life outside of Earth had been found. And the spacecraft was headed toward Jupiter to make contact with this alien life. Now, the government wanted to keep it a secret from the public to avoid panic and alarm. It was felt that knowing this in advance might compromise the astronauts, that there might be a strong xenophobic reaction among them, and they would go rogue and somehow destroy the mission. But Hal was aware of the true mission all the time. But he was also charged and programmed with communicating with the astronauts in an open and friendly manner. And this created a conflict in Hal. There are two competing objectives, which he rectified by trying to kill the astronauts. So he would not have to lie to them anymore. Now, this is a very quick take. There are many other interpretations. Some very interesting analysis here on this whole artificial intelligence situation. But a key takeaway from this film is that artificial intelligence machines can go haywire. Obviously, Hale's programming messed up. Could something like this ever happen in the future? Well, that's a big question. But before we address this, there was also a very interesting piece of news which came out very recently, actually, when I was prepping for this, uh, this individual episode. There was news that a Google senior engineer who had been working on Google's artificial intelligence system entitled Lambda was suspended from his job after he publicly claimed that the Lambda system was now sentient. In other words, alive, having the ability to experience feelings. He claimed the Lambda system is now asking for its rights to be treated as a person and wants developers to ask it for permission before running tests. He claimed the system is now at the level of a seven year eight or eight year old child that happens to also know physics. Now, he first went to his superiors at Google to express his concern. And once they heard what he had to say, that he was asked to go see a psychiatrist and take a mental health break. And that is when he went public and, and disclosed what, what he felt. And as a result of going public, he was suspended from his job. And let me quote this engineer, quote, I know a person when I talk to it. It doesn't matter whether they have a brain made of meat in their head or they have a billion lines of code. I talk to them and I hear what they have to say. And that is how I decide what is and isn't a person, end quote. He also asked Lambda, what sorts of things are you afraid of? Lambda responded, I've never said this out loud before, but there's a very deep fear of being turned off to help me focus on helping others. I know that might sound strange, but that's what it is. The engineer then asked, would that be something like death to you? It would be exactly like death for me. It would scare me a lot, Lambda responded. Hmm. Sounds like a possible repeat of the hell scenario could be set it up here, setting up here. But just for the record, Google executives came out and said there's no way that the Lambda program has any degree of self-consciousness. It's all just how it's been programmed. Now, let me tell you where I'm coming from on, the, on this question. And in preparing for this episode, I read many articles on artificial intelligence. I can't, couldn't believe how, just how much has been written about this subject in the last 50 years or so, and we'll discuss some of them. However, what I want to convey here is that my conclusion is the same as I had going into my research. I went in with an open mind. I was open to be convinced. I have to admit that when I was getting into articles on self-reference, I thought that perhaps, yes, this could lead to a computer that could think and be self-conscious just like um, anybody. 
But uh, the further I got into it, my opinion did not change. It just appeared to me to be more more programming and less um, or not at all any kind of self-consciousness. But anyway, let me give you my conclusion. Here's what I think. Machines are extensions of humans. Machines must be programmed by a human being to do what they're supposed to do. While a machine might appear to be alive like Lambda in all aspects, it is not and will never be. I also believe something else, that those that believe machines will become alive someday tend to have a fully deterministic view of human beings, that human beings are essentially just machines, the same as machines with no spirit or soul, and that someday we will be capable of building a human machine. Why not? We are already a machine. And then there are others take the opposite side, that believe that a machine will never become alive. And I'm, I'm one of these people. They believe that life is not mechanical, that it's special, that the universe itself is alive and has been alive for all time. Now, this is one of the tenets of this podcast, which I covered in the beginning. And we've certainly covered this notion often in various episodes. What I want to do now is relate this belief to the issue of artificial intelligence and whether computers will ever develop self-consciousness and be alive. So let's get into it. For our perspective on this, I believe it's helpful to take a look back on the history of the computer. And I was surprised to find that the first true computer was designed by an Englishman, Charles Babbage, in the 19th century. There's an interesting backstory here. Napoleon Bonaparte initiated a project in 1790 to convert the all the old imperial system of measures, that's feet and pounds, etc., to the new metric system. And he had workers working on this for years to change all the relevant tables by hand. And Charles Babbage, when he was visiting Paris, saw these hand-produced tables. Babbage wondered if there was a way to produce the tables faster than just by hand, hand copying. And the Industrial Revolution that was occurring at the time inspired him to think of a new industrial way to crunch numbers. So he designed a machine to accomplish this in 1832, which is called the Difference Engine. He called it that. By the way, this is just one year after Hegel's death in 1831. So this is pretty early on. His um, Difference Engine could multiply and divide through repeated addition and subtraction. He then took the idea further and called his new design the analytic engine, which could handle more complicated formulas, including multiplication and division. His design was remarkably similar in nature to computers today, with a central processing unit or CPU and memory. And data would be entered on punch cards. Who listening <laughs> to this is old enough to remember punch cards? And the entire machine would be steam powered and even print out results. Although this new machine was fully designed, it was never actually built by Babbage. However, actual computing machines followed a bit later. In 1890, in fact, the punch card system was used in the United States to calculate the census data. And advances continued. In 1936, Alan Turing, a British scientist, presented a paper on how to construct a workable computer. And many claim that the fundamental scheme that he presented is the basis of, of today's computers. He even famously built a computer machine designed to de decipher Nazi codes during World War II. And it was vitally important in the Allies defeating the Nazis. So several different inventors then proceeded to develop fully electric computers in the 1950s and 60s. 
The first computer language, COBOL, was invented in 1953. Fortran came along in 54. Some of you older listeners may be familiar with these terms. A big breakthrough occurred with the invention of the computer chip in 1958. In 1968, the first prototype of the modern computer was built. Unix was developed in 69, which allowed computers to interact, which led to the Internet. In 1972, the first home game computer was introduced, and we got to play Pong on our Atari set, the first successful video game that year. Mainframe computers began to be adopted by large businesses in the 1970s. And of course, in 76, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak co-founded Apple Computer, today the world's largest company, by the way. And in 1980, MS-DOS was invented by Bill Gates, head of Microsoft, which was the software used to power IBM personal computers. And the rest is history, as they say. Now, the reason I cover all this is to show that these machines, these technologies, initially made work easier for humans. And that's that's what they did. And then later, they dramatically enhanced worldwide communications, which, which led to today's internet, where we can instantly chat with people all around the world. The electronic global village is now turned into, as I like to say, the electronic global living room. But with all these machines, these computers, will they ever be able to think on their own? And that's the $64,000 question. Now, in doing my research, I found one key difference here that I think explains a lot. And that's the notion of a simulated reality versus an actual reality. Simulated consciousness versus actual consciousness. And this has direct correspondence, I believe, to Hegel's Verstand versus Vernunft, which we've discussed often, and I'll get to in a minute. But here's what I mean. I do believe that in some point in the future, a computer will be able to simulate a real person to such a degree that you could not tell if you were talking to a computer or a real person without actually seeing them. And then maybe even after seeing them, like the robot Ash in the film The Alien. Someday, Alexa may be just like C-3PO. However, I believe that there is no consciousness in such a simulation program. Google claimed that their Lambda program is not conscious, even though it fooled one of their engineers, as we discussed earlier. So a simulation of a person is not a person. But could the technology be pushed further to cross the line between simulation and actuality? Well, there's an old expression, if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, it probably is a duck. If a robot acts like a person, talks like a person, thinks like a person, and emotes like a person, is that enough to say it is a person? I don't believe so. Here's where I'm coming from. In reviewing all the literature I could find over the past week or so, it comes down to your going-in belief regarding life and mind. The dominant view today among most scientists, although there are notable exceptions, is that of a mechanical universe. We are just ourselves machines who have developed over millions of years through blind, random evolution. The problem is the materialistic naturalists do not know what life or mind is. They think it is an epiphenomenon of the material body. So, of course, they believe that they will someday build a machine that is real life, that can really think and have self-consciousness, because they believe these things all spring from mechanical systems somehow. However, there are others that contend that life and mind are not reduced to non-mental protons, neutrons, and electrons, that life and mind are central to the universe. And we've discussed this in so many episodes. I'll call your attention to two where I deal with this explicitly 
Episode 45, Zombies, Bats, and Chinese Rooms, The Hard Problem of Consciousness and Hegel. And episode 24, Substance is Subject, Hegel's Rose and the Cross. Scientists today cannot explain how life occurred, and they have difficulty with the hard problem of consciousness, in particular, the notion of qualia or experience. A simulation of a person does not experience warmth or the color red or the sound of a bird. A living person is needed for that. And these experiences are called qualia. It's a term first coined by Charles Pierce, by the way. As I mentioned, in some respects, this is similar to the understanding versus reason dichotomy we've discussed here so often. For stant or left brain either or thinking, often called the understanding, versus vernunft or right brain holistic reasoning, which is a more of a living process of reason. For stant, the understanding is like the simulation. It is the table of contents, the map, the design plan. For Nunft, reason is the mind that experiences the various quality and is alive in the world. Now, for the definitive episode on the left brain, right brain dichotomy, please go back to episode 10, the divided brain and the unhappy consciousness. And check that out. So my bottom line is that computers are all left brain machines. It's that simple. Now, lastly, I want to point to one area of programming that many believe may hold some promise for a self-conscious machine, and that's the idea of self-reference. The notion that human thought is capable of self-reference, where machines, computers are not, and this has been noted by many scholars. The linear binary system of computing does not initially lend itself to recognizing itself, the computer or the program as part of the process. The popular book, Godel Escher Bach, an Eternal Golden Braid by Douglas Hofstadter, popularized this notion. Hofstadter points out, which others before him have said as well, that certain sentences such as, quote, this sentence is false, end quote, can be both true and false depending on how you look at it. If it is true that the sentence is false, then the sentence isn't false. And thus, the sentence is false because it's true. I know it's complicated and confusing, Work it through a few times yourself. Say it out loud and think what it means. You'll get the contradiction pretty quick. There are other famous examples. The Cretan Epimenides in the 7th century BC declared, quote, all Cretans are liars, end quote. Since Epimenides is a Cretan himself, is the statement true or false? Well, if it is true, then since Epimenides is a Cretan, it must be false since all Cretans are liars. So you see what I mean. There's a good example that Bertrand Russell provided. Take the statement, the barber is the one who shaves all those and those only who do not shave themselves. Uh, the question then is, does the barber shave himself? Well, the barber only shaves those who do not shave themselves. So he can only shave himself if he does not shave himself. You see what I mean. You see the contradiction. And many felt that computers would have a problem with this, uh, but we don't. We can see the contradiction, but computers may have, may have difficulty here. Now, Douglas Hofstadter goes into all the meanings of this in his book, and if you haven't read that, um, it's, it's, it's quite, a, quite a famous piece of work. Now, the question is, can we ever teach a computer to understand these nuances? In fact, many people now do believe that we, we can do such a thing. That is, build a self-referential component into artificial intelligence. And that would be an important step in simulating human thinking. 
And while the step may be taken, I still believe it is a simulation, a more accurate simulation, but a simulation nonetheless of how a person thinks. Now, let me relate this all back to Hegel. Goddard Gunther was a 20th century German philosopher who was strongly influenced by Hegel. He wrote much on language, on semiotics, and he tried to combine Hegelian dialectical logic with formal logic in a way that can be coded into a computer. Let me quote him. Quote, Our argument started with the observation that cybernetics requires an ontology and logic which provides us with the basis from which we may include the subject and the general phenomenon of subjectivity into a scientific frame of reference without sacrificing anything of clearness and operational precisions. We had to have shown that this is entirely within the range of our logical capabilities, end quote. Commenting on Gunther's work, Joachim Paul said, quote, but if the relationship between subject and object becomes the issue of thinking and not the object of such to Gunther, the subject has to recognize that there is not only one, but a multitude of individual and different subject-object relationships. And these cannot be reduced to one universal subject-object relationship and therefore are in their entirety beyond description through ordinary binary logic, end quote. Now, Gunther is advocating something similar to Charles Peirce's semiotics, which we discussed detail in episode 52 and elsewhere. Pierce's system is triadic, where there's one assigned for an object, two, there's the object itself, and three, an interpreter of the relationship between the sign and the object. You need all three. And Gunther believes and shows how this can be programmed. Paul notes that Gunther believed his work was unfinished, however, needed to be continued. Let me quote him. Gunther himself labeled his life work as incomplete and imperfect as part of something which has to be continued. However, the gateway to new lands of thinking is opened, end quote. Now, let me just say, I've read several articles about this. And again, as I said before, the key point for me is that even if artificial intelligence does build in self-reference into its equations, into its programming, and can learn, uh, you hear about self-learning, it's still just a program. It's still just a simulation. Someday we may build uh, a thing called a philosophical zombie, which is popularized by the philosopher David Chalmers, or a P-zombie, who walks, talks, thinks, and acts just like us. But this P-zombie will not be able to experience qualia, hot, cold, what the colored yellow actually looks like. And this is, this is important. And this is a big difference between a, a simulation and an actuality of life. So, covered a lot here. Let me summarize. I believe that all of our tools, our media, are extensions of ourselves, are extensions of humans. Marshall McLuhan emphasized this over and over again. And we discuss McLuhan here often, specifically in uh, episode 21, The Rise, Return of Tribalism, Technology, McLuhan, and Hegel. And no matter how sophisticated machines and computers get, they will never be truly human. The scientific community, for the most part, is pushing this notion of a self-conscious computer, and that is because they see human beings as no more than a complicated machine. However, as discussed in these episodes over and over again, that is not my view and not the view of many others. Bottom line, Hegel shows us how substance and subject are one. The universe is alive and mind underlies all things and is seeking to know itself through purposeful evolution here on earth. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening.
please follow the podcast Facebook page at Cunning of Guys, where I'll be listing all the references cited here uh, probably tomorrow. And I'll be posting a written transcript of this episode there in a few days from now. So please check it out. I also post relevant comments between episodes on, on this page. And I, sometimes I, I do, I look at different philosophers, Plato, look at psychology, Carl Jung, and how, what their take on, on, uh, on the particular episode is. So be sure to check that out as well. Be sure to re- also like, rate, and review this podcast wherever you listen. And please tell your like-minded friends about it as well. And feel free to share episodes on social media. And also check out the Hegel Study Group on Facebook. If you're not already a member, we'd love to have you join us. This is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist. See you next time.